God's grace, peace, and mercy be upon you on this second Sunday of Lent through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Good fences make good neighbors. Would you agree? Maybe. Robert Frost wouldn't agree with you. In his poem, Mending Wall, he and his neighbor are on opposite sides of some old stone wall that divides their property, and they're picking up stones that have fallen down over the years and stacking them back up to mend the wall. And the neighbor says, good fences make good neighbors. Frost says to his neighbor, but I have an apple tree and you have pines. The seeds from my trees and the cones from yours aren't going to choke each other out. The neighbor says, good fences make good neighbors. Frost says, but but I don't have cows that would wander in and trample on your land. Neighbor says, good fences make good neighbors. It's a great poem of uh, two viewpoints. Fences make good neighbors because the division keeps the two properties neat and, co- neat and clean and prevents any squabbles. On the other hand, fences are barriers to communication and friendship. It's hard to have the best the best of both viewpoints. You know, most of us have fences around our property, and our mindset is probably something like, you're welcome to come in as long as you're friendly, but if you're not, then stay out, (laughs) right? And on a more practical level, fences keep something in from getting out, you know, like a dog or something. But a defensive barrier is more likely the psychology behind Fences and walls. And that's what Robert Frost is getting at in his poem. Why must man build barriers between his brother? It's a question to make you think and ponder the unfortunate reality. But we all know why, right? Because the world is a dangerous place. Visiting some friends in northern Italy years ago, we were driving through the country along the base of the Italian Alps. And I'm noticing these wonderful centuries-old homes out in the, out in the country, uh, separated from each other by several acres. Yet they all had these iron fences with spears on top of them and uh, block walls around the, the house. And I asked my friend's wife, who is Italian, What's the deal here? I mean, is there crime way out here in the, in the country? And she said, no. But when your ancestors have all been invaded several times over through the centuries, you know, by the barbarians and the vandals and the Mongols and the Huns, well, you, your mindset is to put a fence around your home. The fence is a statement. Stay away. Stay out. This is my home. When Jesus and the crowd that followed him walked from a thousand feet below sea level in Galilee up two thousand feet above sea level to Jerusalem to do what he'd been sent by the Father to do for all humankind, he had to walk through a defensive barrier to do some serious house cleaning, some shaking up, among other things, before it would all be finished. Palm Sunday is still a few weeks away. But I want to take us into Jerusalem with Jesus today and see the first thing he does when he gets in there. That great city 
with a good fence around it. For what, though? To be a good neighbor? (laughs) Hardly. No, to defend herself. The capital city of God on earth has a pretty good fence around it. Well, several, actually, because it's the most besieged, beleaguered, assaulted city on the planet. Even after Jesus would ascend into heaven, Jerusalem would continue to be ransacked by crazy King Hakim from Egypt and then the Ottoman Turks. What is it about this place? There are so many other great cities to ransack, but there's only one capital city of God, isn't there? Only one temple where God dwells with his people. It's an important place, especially to God. In Jesus, God goes to his own house. You can see it there. Uh, well, let me get, let's get closer. There's the temple. The temple in Jesus' day. If you go there today, that whole thing's been leveled. It's just uh, flat. It's, all the walls around it are gone. The temple's gone. What you have in the center there is the Dome of the Rock, right? Which is a Muslim structure. The Muslims built that. Uh, but in Jesus' day, there's the temple in the, in the very center of the courtyard there. Jesus is going to go there to clean things up. It's here at the sacrificial center of Israel that Jesus will be the ultimate sacrifice for Jews and Gentiles. But what does he do first? Well, he chases out the small business owners in there. Jesus is not a friend to the Chamber of Commerce in Jerusalem. He calls the temple den or a, a temple a den of robbers, thieves. Well, on the surface, you wouldn't think that what's going on there is all that bad. The merchants are selling animals to the pilgrims that come there to worship and offer a sacrifice as it's written in the laws of Moses. These pilgrims come from all over the place, far away. It's impractical for them to drag their own animals hundreds of miles across deserts and up the hills of the, of the hill country. It's more convenient to buy them there when they get there, right? What's wrong with convenience and practicality? Well, sin can corrupt any good plan or good intention. Things got out of hand in the temple by Jesus' day. The sacrificial system God had set up became mismanaged. The temple had a certain design to it, dictated by God to serve certain purposes. But over the centuries, in efforts to convert and purify the Gentiles, some of those sacred spaces were remodeled into something more like trading posts or uh, kiosks like you have in the mall to sell stuff. Now, pilgrimage to Jerusalem was by no means tourism back then. And it's not really today either if one takes the trip seriously and reverently. Even by Jesus' day, though, pilgrimage there had taken on a kind of tourist-like racket or a scheme that resulted in a lot of misguided people making money off of poor, sick people seeking healing from God there. That's why Jesus was so angry. And it's no wonder the temple was the first place mentioned that he went to after entering through that great fence around the city. 
Not only that, but he used his father's house for exactly what it was designed for, healing the people of their sins, their diseases, and their infirmities. Now, who knows how many people he healed in the temple? You know, Matthew doesn't specify. And we don't know how long, for, how long he was there doing it either. You know, at least long enough for the Pharisees to catch wind of it and head over there and find out what was going on. And don't you just love what Jesus says to these guys when they ask him, do you hear what all these people are saying? They're crying out to you, calling you son of David. And he says, yeah. Have you ever read out of the mouths of infants and nursing babies you have prepared praise? See, he's throwing a little Psalm number 8 back into their faces. Ah, but then this is where the little match of wits is over. We don't get to hear any retort or shouting match. Jesus just leaves. He'll go in and out of the city many times before he's crucified. Bethany is less than a half day's walk away. It's another city on a hilltop, a few peaks and valleys away to the south. There he'll meet and stay with Mary and Martha and Lazarus, whom he'll become friends with and love very, very much. To be a Christian today means to look at moments like this in our verses today from Matthew, where God entered his temple to cleanse it from sin and defilement and make parallels with the church today. In fact, there are more parallels than you can shake a stick at in Matthew. How much different are we than these money changers? We still falter and fail with the gifts and instructions God has given us. We mismanage his resources that are used in his kingdom for healing and getting his word out, teaching, rebuking, comforting, and so forth. We do it with good intentions and bad. We mismanage our own lives, making so many things a priority over worshiping God. And not much has changed with God's people over the years. Then, then there's also the parallel of the temple in Jerusalem with the sanctuary today. Now, Christian altars are traditionally modeled after the altar in the temple. The chancel here is the, uh, the holy of holies and the table itself where the, well, sorry, the screen's in the way, but you know the precipice in the background, it's called a, the wooden piece is called a precipice. That's the most that's modeled after the, the, the holiest of holies, the places where only uh, Moses and Aaron could go, the high priest could go. Now, we don't bring a pigeon or a lamb here to sacrifice anymore, but we bring our, our tithes and our offerings. A tenth of least of what God gives us back to him to be used for the things I mentioned earlier in his kingdom. I could go on with these comparisons, but there's a, another one I want you to hear. The blind and the lame came to him in the temple for healing. And they cried out, Hosanna to the son of David. Think there's another parallel here? You and I come to the temple. The sanctuary place for healing. And we cry out in our worship services the same words and many, many more from Scripture just like them. 
and we get healed. We are healed. The healing Jesus Christ brings today is forgiveness of sins, freedom from bondage to sin, everlasting life, salvation, peace, joy, contentment, all that and more in the midst of troubles, even in the midst of the devil's assaults and sieges on the fence God has put around us for protection. Call it what you will from Scripture. The armor of God, the sheep's pen, the holy ark of the Christian faith. All God has done which keeps you and me safe on dry land after having been plucked out of the dark sea of sin and death. To be a Christian also means these parallels end with Jesus. The temple, the sacrifices, the high priests, the law of Moses, those are but shadows now of the former things. Jesus is the new Israel. He's the new Jerusalem. He's the new temple. He's the sacrifice that atones for the sin of the people. Jesus is the way in which people are saved and live forever. Trust and believe in Him. And what marvelous things He has done on His way to make Himself the ultimate sacrifice on our behalf. He cleansed the temple from corruption in preparation to cleanse your heart and mine from sin. He kicked out the devils from His Father's house and kicked out a demon or two from you and me in our baptism. And he has made you a temple of God. Man, I could go on with this stuff indefinitely. You know, there's no end to it. And I haven't even gotten to the fig tree in verse 18. Some other day. And we'll look at it in Bible study today after the service. Good fences make good neighbors. Humanly speaking, it's debatable. When you're speaking about Jesus, though, he's broken down the barrier between us and the Father, making God accessible to us and acceptable to him through the death and resurrection of his son, Jesus Christ. It's his love that makes us good neighbors to each other. Amen.